I want to ask this question, and I'll kind of explain the context of the question, because really what I'm doing today is kind of letting you in on what I've been wrestling with over the last month. Is it worth it? And what I mean by that question, because you can read that and be like, of course it's worth it, it's Jesus. And, and I, I would hope that would be our natural answer. But, but the challenge for me, and this is where the hypocrisy in life comes out, is naturally I say, yes, absolutely, it's worth it. But then I look at my life, and I have to ask this question. If it's really worth it, why is my life not reflecting it at all times? Why am I coming up so short so often? And I bet if we're really honest, a lot of people in this room could probably relate to that. Is Christ worth following? Is Christ worth seeking this type of community that we so desperately want here at our church? And, and really, you know, as, I, as I've been thinking about it, there are three other you know, really specific reasons I want to ask that question to us and to myself. And the first one is, go back to the New Testament reading. If you have your bulletin, you can flip it open. We're not going to put it back up, and we don't need to. But I, I want to just, as you read that summary... Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's this amazing picture. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Because it's this beautiful picture of what relationships in Christianity should look like. It's this beautiful picture of this early church body of all of this meshing of believers coming together and sharing life together. And God was doing some amazing things. And, and I asked myself this question, and, and it's kind of an ironic question. We all in this room would say, we want those kind of authentic relationships. We would say, we want to look like that passage. I don't think there's a person in here that would argue with that. But my question is, how many of us are willing to be vulnerable enough to look like that? There's this great irony in life to where we, we want authenticity, but we hate vulnerability. You can't have both. You, you can't have one without the other. They, they, they are hand in hand. And what I've seen in life, and this is where it really starts to hit close to home, is it's hard to be vulnerable. Because when you become vulnerable with people, when you start opening up to people and saying, I'm sorry, when you go out of your way, perfect word, to trust and to love people around you, you're opening up yourself for two things, hurt and rejection. And a lot of people, and if we went through this room, again, there'd be a lot of stories. Some people, some in this room, no doubt, have been so hurt in life. We want authentic relationships, but we're never going to really pursue them because we're not willing to open that door again. Some have been so rejected in life that we want those relationships, but we so fear that type of rejection, that type of hurt, that type of pain, that we'll go this far in our relationships, but we're not going to go all in. And that's a challenge. So going back to the question... Is it worth it? Is it worth opening up yourself? You know, if I asked you right now, how many of you have relationships like that? Bill has challenged me on this. He just did it again the other night. We were together, and, and there was a group of us, and he simply said, who is that phone call in the middle of the night? Who's that phone call when things go wrong that you can just pour everything out to? Who's that person in your life? And I was sitting there, you know, kind of biting my tongue going, I don't know. How many relationships do I have that look like the picture that we see in Acts 2. And then the second thing, kind of building on that, as you read the very end of Acts 2, verse 47, the last phrase there is, and God was adding to their number daily. You know, the beautiful thing about the early church, and obviously this is God and the Holy Spirit working in this, is the church was exploding. The church was growing rapidly, but we like Acts chapter 2, where it's they're preaching and people are coming to Christ. What we don't necessarily like in our lives is what follows in the next couple chapters. If you read on in the book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested 
threatened by Jewish leaders. Chapter 5, in prison. Chapter 7, jump ahead, the first martyr, Stephen, gets killed for the faith. Chapter 8, the church in Jerusalem is dispersed because of persecution. And you know what's intriguing, and this is just the reality of where the church is, is in the book of Acts, the greatest growth in the church came from the greatest persecution of the church. The greatest growth of seeing the church explode came when the greatest persecution was upon the church. That dispersion in chapter 8 led to churches being planted all over the place. How many of us desire that? And by the way, this is the same thing today. It's easy to say, okay, that's the book of Acts. Let me, let me give you a couple of realities of today. Today, if you look at where the church is growing most worldwide, countries where it's growing most, you got countries like Nepal, China, Saudi Arabia. Interestingly, out of the top 20 meaning fastest-growing countries of Christianity inside that country, 11 of them are Muslim-dominated countries. In other words, where the church is being refined and where the church is in its just growth and just blossoming is in the countries where the hardest persecution is happening. On the opposite, by the way, I'll just throw this out, and this is a side note, but something to consider. By comparison, 80%, 80% of churches in America, the United States of America, are shrinking today. 80%. You know, if you want to get even further, one survey went on to say 10 to 20 churches close each day in the United States of America, meaning shut their doors because there's no longer a viable flock to even minister to. And, and I only throw that out in light of this question, and this is not a, you know, we need to go seek persecution in our lives, but it's asking the question simply this, because nobody's going to sign up for that, but here's the reality. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Christ if that's the potential of where we're going? If that's the reality of the church worldwide? And then the third one, and you go to Jesus' own words. Third reason I ask this question today is simply this. Let me just quote two verses, um, and this is Jesus speaking in both of them. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. The gate is narrow. He goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, we, we, we hear verses like that, but we don't often like to internalize verses like that. We hear the idea of, okay, deny myself, take up my cross. The hardest thing for us as Americans is self-denial. We live in a culture, and by the way, all three of these things that we've just mentioned, relationships that are open and honest, you know, trials, hardships, suffering, and then this third one, self-denial, go completely contrary to the very fabric of American thinking. And that's a battle we have to engage in. That's something we need to consider as a, as a Christian. In America, you know, the things that we seek most are comfort. The things that we seek most often are ease. The things that we seek most often are healthy enough relationships to where I can get what I want out of relationships, but I don't really have to fully invest myself. The things we seek most are the things that are actually very contrary to what the Bible teaches and to what Jesus challenges us to. And so this morning, the question is simple, and the question is intentional, and it's simply, is it worth it? And everyone initially is going to say yes. But I want, as I go through this, and we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 13, and you can flip there in your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, and it's short, it's simple, and it's Jesus kind of getting right to the heart of the matter. But as we go through this passage today, what I want us to think about and what I want us to do is go further than just the mental side of, yes, it's Jesus, of course it's worth it. Ask yourself, what does my life look like in light of what this passage says? How am I 
actively responding to the truth that I hold. And let's dig into it. Now the passage, let me read it for us. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. And it's Jesus speaking, telling a parable, and he simply says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he's making a really simple comparison. And he's making one, if you think about his audience back 2,000 years ago who's listening, he's making a comparison that they get. He's talking in agricultural terms. You had a lot of people that worked outside that were in the farming, shepherding kind of communities. He's talking about merchants, a lot of people who traveled around. And he makes the comparison to the kingdom of heaven to two very specific things. The first one is a treasure found in the field. You know, I was reading different commentators on this week and uh, on this this week and the big thing they said was because of the political instability of the day, because of the the craziness of the day and the way things were constantly being overturned because obviously in their, those days they didn't have, you know, you know, Wells Fargo to walk down the street and deposit your money in and everything was somewhat up in the air. What people would often do is take the treasure that they had and they would find a place to bury it, to hide it where only they would know. And the idea behind that was, that way I can keep my treasure and not lose it. By the way, I know some people that do this today. I knew a family in Columbia who literally the guy would take $100 bills and you know, wrap them up in wads and stick them in like freezers or in panels in the wall. Um, and some of you might be, yeah, that's me. I don't know. But the, the point being, it's this idea of buried treasure. And it's the idea of when he found it. He saw it as absolutely supremely valuable to where he sold all he had in order to go obtain it. And the same thing, the second illustration is of pearls. You know, pearls in those days were basically the equivalent, um, the equivalency of diamonds today. It would be the equivalency of you walking out and finding a, you know, a stack of diamonds sitting on the ground or one big diamond, and the value of that would be overwhelming. And the person, you know, according to what Jesus is saying here, upon finding the one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had in order to obtain it. And the point Jesus is making today is simply this. Kingdom of heaven, like the treasure, like the pearl, is infinitely more valuable than anything else. Anything else that we have in our lives. And and note also, I want to mention this because this is key. When you think about Christ and the way he's describing these people, he's describing the wholeness of the man. And what I mean by the wholeness of the man is he's talking about his mind. In other words, he intellectually knew how valuable it was. He's talking about his emotions with joy. He was willing to get rid of everything else because this is so valuable. And he's talking about his will. He actively made the choice to do it. What I find often in my life and what I would venture to say a lot of us do when it comes to following Christ fully, pursuing the kingdom of heaven as Jesus puts it, what I find often is this. Some of us mentally we get it, but emotionally we're disconnected from it. Some of us emotionally get it. We're rah-rah, but when it comes to making choices, we're not ready. A lot of times, instead of having mind, will, and emotions all working together, we have one, two, or three, as opposed to all of them in line. And Jesus is saying, if you understand the infinite value of this kingdom, everything is secondary to this kingdom. And so today, all I want to do is give us just three lessons 
that we can pick up. And three simple statements, and, I, and I'm going to say these, in, in the beauty of Jesus, and I love his words, they're so simple, and yet there's so much depth. And so the first statement is simply this, the kingdom of heaven is of infinite value is of infinite value. In that passage, you clearly see the person saw the treasure, saw the pearl as being more valuable than anything else. We live in a culture that assigns value. Think about it. We value things. That's an American mindset, and that's the way we work. We value what kind of car we drive. We value what kind of neighborhood we live in. We value status as far as job, occupation, all these kind of things. There's so much assigning of value to so many different things in our culture today. The challenge is what kind of a value do we sign to Jesus? And the real challenge is, what we often do is we sign value to Jesus as kind of an add-on. Well, I value my life, I value my job, I value my status, I value all these things, and I value my relationship with Christ. And what ends up happening is Christ becomes a compartment of our life. And we have work over here, we have play over here, we have family over here, we have Christ over here. And it just becomes a section as opposed to the supreme thing that everything else falls secondary to. And you know, as you think about this, John Calvin put it this way. He said, we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life fades from our view. And in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation with which they deserve. In other words, what Calvin's saying is this, often in life, we're so captivated by the world that we miss the value of the kingdom of heaven. We know it, but we miss it in the way we live our lives. I was reading this past week in Hebrews. How many of y'all have ever read Hebrews 11? You have that great listing of all these men and women of great faith. And they all go through, and and it's this, you know, he did this, and she did this, and it goes on and on and on. The unique thing, here's something I've been battling over recently, and and I mentioned this a couple months ago when I was up here with you. I've been looking at, you know, different people of old. I've been looking at different Bible characters, and I've been trying to figure out what was so different about them that they got that's different from my life today? What was it that they understood that led them to do something different than what I'm doing today that added depth to their faith? In Hebrews chapter 11, 13 through 16, I'll just read it to you. I think this is a picture of what was different. These men and women all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And here's the thing. When you think about these men and women and what inspired their faith, here's what's kind of challenging me. What do I view as my home? What do I view as my realm? Do I see myself, in the words of the writer here, as a stranger in exile on this earth? Or do I see this earth as everything that there is? Do I see myself, as he puts it this way, desiring a better country, a heavenly one? Or am I putting all my hope in this right here, right now? And a lot of times as Christians, that's a major battle. Because it's easy to get caught up in what we see and to lose sight of what we don't see. And so here in this passage, it's a picture of these men and women who valued rightly the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, I'll simply ask you this. How does your desire for the presence of God, for the kingdom of heaven, impact you each day? 
And what I mean by that is not do you value it, because I think everyone's going to say, yeah, I value it. But here's the specific question. And think internally. Think about your last five days of your life. How does your desire for the absolute intimacy and presence of God, how has it impacted anything that's happened in the last five days of your life? Has it challenged it? Has it changed your relationships? Has it changed your choices? Has it changed your love? Has it changed your forgiveness? Has it impacted what's valuable to you? Or has this week gotten busy? And things gotten crazy? And the kingdom of heaven was part of it, but it wasn't the supreme, most valuable thing in the last five days of your life. If you want to know if you really value it, don't ask what people say. Ask how they live. And you'll see if there's a real value. The second thing is the kingdom of heaven brings, and I love the phrase in verse 44, brings true joy. And this goes back to last week, and we're going to build a little bit on it. Uh, The phrase in verse 44 says, Then with joy he sells all that he has and buys the field. Does Does that connect to your Christian experience? When you made the decision, and some of you right now are wrestling over this anyways, but for those that have, when you made the decision to say, I'm all in. I'm following Christ. This is, this is it for me. This is the most valuable thing I have. Was there a joy in letting go of everything else and saying, this is the one thing I want? Or is it more of a, and, and think about yourself, is it more of an internal battle of I know I should want this, but I still really want this because this brings me happiness? as opposed to seeing Christ as the only source of eternal joy. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way, and this is one of his most famous quotes. He says, We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. And he uses this phrase, We are far too easily pleased. In other words, What's bringing you joy in your life right now? Is it something that could be taken away like that? Or is it an eternal kingdom that will not be taken away? What's bringing you that depth and that excitement and that passion in your life? Are you so seeking the kingdom that that is what it is? Or is it all the distractions, all the things around us? Uh, you know, you can go on, and, and I was thinking about this a little bit, and Lewis goes on to talk about this, and David Platt recently wrote a little bit on this as well. Basically, the, the idea, and I'll just read the quote, says, our prayer should be, God, increase our desire for pleasure. And this goes to what Bill was referring to last week. Our problem is not that our desires are too strong for other things. It's rather that our desires for Christ are too weak. In other words, we have such a wrong estimation of what true joy is, we settle. We settle over and over for joy that comes from a victory in a football game. For all the Clemson fans out there, you didn't experience that yesterday. But for that joy that comes from that, or that joy that comes from a relationship, or that joy that comes from doing well at work and succeeding, or that joy that comes from amounting possessions, or that joy that comes from, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And the the challenge of C.S. Lewis is simply this. Are you far too easily pleased? It's not that your desires are too strong. It's that for me personally, and I bet a lot of us in this room, our desires for the true source of joy are way too weak. We settle for so little when so much is offered. How many of us could honestly, honestly, like the guy in the story, Say, with joy, I will sell all that I have because this is so much better. And often in our lives, we want to say that, 
but do we find our absolute joy in that? Now let's go to the third one. And the third one is simply this. We've said the kingdom of heaven is of infinite value. The kingdom of heaven brings true joy. And the last one is the kingdom of heaven is worthy of all total abandonment in our lives. And this may be the hardest one. You get to verse 46. It talks about selling all that you have and buying the field. Selling all that you have and buying the pearl. And here's the thing. In our culture, we've so minimized Christ. And I don't think it's been intentional, but it's a challenge we face because we focus so much on the, the, our presentation of the gospel. I was somewhere in the last two weeks where the gospel was presenting, and I almost cringed. And part of this is just my internal struggles. But part of it is it was almost this pleading of just come to accept Christ. Just come to Christ. Please come to Christ. And, and not that it's wrong because when you read Paul, he pleads with people to come to Christ. But it's almost as if we've made Christ this weak Savior who just needs our acceptance, as opposed to this eternal King who demands our acceptance because of his very character and his very nature. And so when we've missed that, if we've missed who Christ really is, what becomes really challenging is this. The biggest battle for us is to realize that Christ is worthy of all. The biggest battle for us is to realize that it's not just about accepting Christ, it's about total life abandonment in the pursuit of Christ. You know, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's that recognition of that life is no longer about me and it's no longer about you. It's about Christ. And, uh, you know, the, Platt does a, a fabulous thing of kind of looking at the early disciples and he says this, so this is Jesus speaking. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And he kind of goes through and looks at the disciples and says, okay, what did it mean for them? And you think about Jesus' early calling of these fishermen, these tax collectors, all these random guys, and saying, come follow me. And they drop everything and they follow him. What did it mean when he said to renounce everything that you have for the pursuit of me? And when you go through their lives, what did these disciples give up? comfort and familiarity. They left their homes, careers, fishing, tax collecting, whatever it was, they left it behind. Possessions. You, know, you think about the fishermen specifically, their boat, their fishing gear. They weren't well off, but they obviously had some means, and they left it all. Families, their fathers, their mothers. Safety, secure, normal life. They were leaving everything and following a man that says, come follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. I have no place to lay my head as you read the different quotes of Jesus and following him, losing all of those things. And then ultimately, what were they giving up more than anything else or what was being changed in them? Their very hopes, their very dreams, their very aspirations, the things that they probably saw themselves doing with their lives were now backseat to the new desire of following Christ. And for us today, compare this to where we're at today. How many of us work really hard to protect ourselves? How many of us work really hard to bring comfort? How many of us work really hard to be entertained and be happy and be, you know, find, find joy in that? How many of us work really hard to advance ourselves? You know, we're in a world today in 2013 where we live where so many of the priorities that we hold to are so contrary to what Jesus was focusing in on. Comfort and certainty shouldn't be no longer our concern. 
those things shouldn't be the top of our priority list. John Piper had a sermon, this was about 15 years ago. He was talking about men and women coming and applying to uh, work at his church up in Minnesota when he was there. And he said the thing that drove him crazy the most was one of the first questions that always came, at, came up because it was an inner city church is, will my children be saved? To which naturally seems like the appropriate question. But Piper's point was, who promised that? Where's that promised in scripture that everything will be safe, that everything will be comfortable? If you follow me, it's total abandonment to something that is infinitely more valuable. And so comfort and certainty should no longer be our concern. Possessions should no longer be viewed as our own. If we're following Christ, possessions should be viewed as tools and opportunities to serve the king, not as something that I desperately need. Position should no longer be our priority. If God wants you to be on the bottom at the office or at the top, it shouldn't matter because the, the point is, what are you doing for the kingdom where God has you? Family devotion. Here's a tough one. Steve Anthony was teaching in Sunday school today, and this is one that probably hit a lot of people. He's talking on idols and simply made the point, how often do we make idols out of our children and out of our family? Here's a thought. Our family and our children are, are sacred and, and need to be cared for, and those are all principles from Scripture, but they should all be secondary to Christ. They should all be secondary to our love for our King. And that's not talking about neglecting them. We love, but if they become more important to you than your Father in heaven, that's an issue. That's a hard issue. Safety no longer a priority. In other words, we're renouncing self as we consider this idea of saying, Jesus is worthy of all. He's worthy of total abandonment. What we're really challenging ourselves to is saying, where is our greatest joy and where is our greatest desire? Is everything secondary to the joy and the value and the worth of Christ in your life? This morning, kind of bringing us back to where we started, the reason I want to bring this up is because as I was thinking about this in my own life, and as I was being challenged on this in my own life, and as I was asking the question, what do I want my community to look like? What is my prayer for Hilton Head Presbyterian Church? What is my desire for what God's doing here? Here's where my heart went, and here's what's really convicting and yet exciting at the same time. What I came to realize is simply this, and, and this isn't a profound statement, but it's so infinitely valuable. We will never have the community that Bill was putting in place. We will never have authentic relationships, joyful living, loving, reconciling, forgiving relationships until we all, before we focus on our other relationships, focus on our relationship with Christ. We will never have all of those things as a beautiful community until we have all said, Christ, you are that treasure that is more valuable than anything else. You are that pearl that is infinitely worth more than anything else I have. We will never have that community until we all step back and do a kind of an internal evaluation and say, where am I at in my own life? Where is my heart at? Where am I at in my pursuit of Christ? Because if things aren't healthy here, things will never be healthy here. And so for all of us this morning, the, the, the question I kind of came to after I said all that, I'm like, that's all true. And that's all very good. But then the real question is, okay, how do I do that? That sounds wonderful. That's a lot of great spiritual stuff. But how do I put this into practice today? And here's what I came to think about. When I think about my life, 
and I think about when do I lose my picture of value of the kingdom of heaven? When do I quit seeing Christ as infinitely more valuable than anything else around me? When do I quit finding my absolute joy in Christ? What I've found in my own life is simply this. The times that I lose those things are usually the times when I quit seeing Christ. And what I mean by that is they're the times when I get so involved in my life of valuable, important, useful things, but so much busyness that I lose sight of Christ. How many of you have ever caught yourself, and probably every hand could go up, going through an entire day without once thinking about the beauty of the gospel? I mean, and again, that's one of those everybody's like, eh, okay. But the reality is, how can we do that? I mean, let me, let me ask that honestly, and I ask it to myself. If Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything in our life, how could we possibly go through a day without seeing the beauty of the gospel? How could we possibly go through a day and be satisfied to say, I'm going to spend 10 minutes in reading this morning and a little time in prayer, and then I'm going to go through my day? And those are good things, by the way. But to say, okay, I check it off. I'm going to just go through my day now instead of saying, the gospel is everything to me today. You want the gospel to transform the relationships around you and to make that community that we've been talking about? It starts with us saying, the gospel is so beautiful and so valuable to me every minute of every day. And it starts with us saying, busyness in life is not an excuse to miss the greater joy that God has for us. It starts with us stepping back and saying, I want to be able to pray. And I'll read Paul's words. And these are tough. I want to be able to pray with integrity what Paul said when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many of us can pray that? I know I can't with any kind of integrity to actually say, I really believe that everything I do today is going to be about the kingdom because the kingdom is so valuable to me. Everything I do today is going to be focused on that. And for Paul, obviously, in his circumstances, and you know what happened in his life, he lost his life for the gospel and he viewed it as gain because like the people in Hebrews, he understood that this world is a fleeting tent. This world is a place where, as believers, our home is not bound here. We're placed here for a reason to glorify our king, but our home is much greater. And my challenge is, Christ is worth it. We all know he's worth it, but my challenge is this. Let's all examine our hearts. Let's examine our lives, and let's not miss another day without seeing the beauty of Christ and letting it transform everything about we do, what we do, because it's infinitely more valuable. Let's pray. Father, as we think on some of these words, as we think on Paul's words at the end there, as we think on Jesus' words about the kingdom of heaven and its value, and we think about our lives, we confess that we fall way short. We confess that our desires for you are way too weak. And yet, Lord, we come before you because you are a loving and gracious God that wants us to find intimacy with you, that wants us to find our absolute pleasure and joy in life in you, and that wants our lives to be about your kingdom. And we pray as a body here that we would be about your kingdom. We pray that we would be focused on you each day, and we pray that that would transform our relationships, that we would live in a community that is pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen.